in every generation there is a podcast. They alone shall stand against the fun vampires, workday demons, and the forces of boredom. They are time for cakes and ale. Hello and welcome to Time for Cakes and Ale, episode 12, with me, Eason. And me, Bex. And this episode is a special episode about the 20th anniversary of Buffy. Yes. 20 years ago today, the very first episode of Buffy aired on TV in the US. Makes us feel very old. (laughs) It does make us feel very old. Especially as I, I remember, I started watching Buffy during season two and I was at university, and mm. that makes me feel super old. It was a lo- it was some time ago. Yeah. I suppose one of the reasons why the 20th anniversary is being celebrated, unlike it is for many other shows, is that it has had a tremendous amount of staying power. It stayed sort of in the zeitgeist for those 20 years. It's influenced so many things. We certainly still watch it. Yeah, about once every year or so, we feel like it's time to start re-watching the whole yeah. thing. It's always watchable. There's so much you can pick up every time. Mm. And there's a lot which is so memorable that when you're watching it, you're waiting for the funny bit to happen or the or the good bit that you remember happening yeah. and things. Yeah, and it's such an influential programme and one that has um, had an effect on so many different aspects of pop culture that yeah. we thought, you know what, 20th anniversary... Let's talk about it. Yeah. You can see its influence in a huge number of shows that have come afterwards. And even in shows that are being made today, which we really love today, they wouldn't be the shows they are, I think, if Buffy hadn't been the massive success that it was. Even though it was spawned from a not very successful movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which we've just kind of forgotten about. So when we started thinking about the 20th anniversary, we started talking about what some of our favourite episodes are. And we realised as we went through them that actually the episodes that we love the most, remember the most, or had the biggest influence on the show are ones that really highlight all the different ways in which it was well-written, well-cast, well-performed. Kind of going through a list of all our our favourite episodes and we thought it might be fun to just talk about those that we remember the most and that we love the most. And explain sort of how they fitted into the mythology of Buffy and how they added to our overall enjoyment of the programme. Yeah. And they're not always well-regarded episodes so Buffy had some episodes that everyone you know really knows loves etc yeah some of the ones we like are slightly unusual choices Mm. they're ones we like very much but it was cool because we could see in them what we liked about them why we thought they were good and potentially how that affected like you say the whole Buffy ethos yeah to us and I think we're going to go through them in chronological order through this series so then they're not necessarily in the order of our favorites and to be honest I'm not even sure that I could pick like a real favourite yeah. episode. and yeah. yeah. Where are we going to start? Well, one thing that was quite interesting is when we were picking up on all of our favourite episodes, we completely skipped over season one. 
Yeah. Um, neither of us went for an episode in season one. And it's not because season one is a, a bad season or anything like that. It just, it, it hadn't really found its feet. It hadn't really become the show yet. Yeah. That it was It was a, trying lots of things out and it hadn't really got a definitive formula yet. But it had established lots of characters, the overall themes. Yeah. Uh, it was a short season as well, wasn't it? It was like 12 episodes or yeah. something. It didn't really have a Buffy feeling to it yet. Mm. You can see looking back that it was all seeded in that first season. Yeah. But it was kind of a let's try some Monster of the Week things. Let's try to establish a mythology with the master. Let's show that this is not just a vampire show. It's also got like demons and weird monsters in it as mm. well. Um, and let's try and establish the tone of it. But it wasn't really one that has some really important standout episodes I think, for the whole seven-year arc of Buffy. Yeah, it's interesting when you go back and listen to it and the music is different. Yeah. Um, the incidental music, I think it was a different composer. Yeah. And you realise what a big part of the show that is when you get to season two and the incidental music that everyone knows and loves kicks in and it really adds to the tone of the show. Some of the incidental music in season one was a bit jarring. Yeah, yeah, a bit ropey. Um, but as Buffy herself might say, back in season one... Uh, that show was cookie dough and it hadn't finished baking into delicious cookies yet. <laughs> <laughs> right, so let's start with School Hard. Yes. Season two. Season two, School Hard, which is a cracking episode in that loads of big mythology things start here, I guess. It's the first time that Spike and Drusilla, or, or uh, Spike rather, encounters Buffy and the Scoobies. Drusilla hasn't gone because she's unwell. So although they were they had come into the show earlier, hadn't they, in an earlier episode? Only a couple of episodes earlier, yeah. Where they'd yeah. arrived. This is the one where they first kind of crash the party yeah. and actually get involved. So you see the beginnings of the kind of past mythology of everything's happened between Spike and Drusilla and Angel when Spike and Angel have that meeting out on the lawn and he calls him his sire, which then turned out mm. not to actually be entirely accurate, but you can see what they were doing with it. There's this whole past between them mm. that is there to be explored. This is also the first time where uh, Joyce, Buffy's mum, goes from being the oblivious parent who's probably exasperated by having to have just moved cities and schools with Buffy again, thinks that Buffy's a troubled child, she's looking after her on her own, doesn't pay much attention to her because she's working at this gallery or something. Um, but she goes to this parent-teacher evening, which is where this episode is largely set, and gets a sense that there is more to her daughter than meets the eye when she realises that the school is being attacked by vampires or they don't really know that they're vampires because they're kind of all in denial as grown-ups are about these monsters that exist i think they try and put it down to sort of gang warfare don't they yeah. they think that think there's a gang attacking the snyder school. says everyone's on pcp yeah. it's pcp <laughs> <laughs> it's gangs on pcp and and joyce she so she doesn't know that they were vampires she doesn't know that buffy's actually out slaying them but she starts to get the sense for the first time that actually buffy is very brave very resourceful and naturally takes control of the situation yeah. um, when she tries to get the adults um, safely locked away into a room and then goes out to try and get help. And at first, Joyce doesn't really want mm. her to go, but then it, by the end of the episode, she's realised that actually Buffy... Is independent, she's tough, she can look after herself. Yeah. That strikes to the core of what Buffy was about, was that you know she was not to be taken at, at face value. Yeah. You know She was a strong, independent female character in this show and she was the lead and I think it was odd that until this point 
she was doing everything with all the other uh, friends she had in the mm. Scooby Gang. So it was like you know Cordelia and Xander and Willow and under the tutelage of um, of Giles. But he was the only adult character who was really aware of what's going on. Mm. This really put everything in the context of look, she can stand up for herself. She can take care of other people, and she's a natural leader and she's very brave and tough etc yeah because earlier on in the episode buffy gets put in charge of doing all the banners and preparation for the parent teacher mm. evening with this other girl can't remember her name sheila or something she yeah something like that yeah. Who's, who's a proper troublemaker always skipping school always hanging out with with the wrong crowd mm. um and who ultimately ends up getting turned into a vampire mm. and buffy worries that that's how people see her she thinks do, do people think that i'm like Sheila. Um, if that's her name, we could be completely wrong. <laughs> We're just referencing the Sheila character. Yeah. So it, it's an important episode in terms of Buffy's relationship with her mum mm. that kind of comes into fruition later in that season when her mum actually finds out that she's a vampire slayer and there are vampires. So you've, you've got a huge amount of foreshadowing and, and uh, re- relationships changing in this episode, while at the same time it's like Die Hard in a school where mm. they're they're all being besieged by vampires. A lot of the episodes up until now have introduced the characters, but they've never had a real episode where all the characters are thrown in together. Yeah. Like you're saying, you have, obviously, the recent addition in the timeline of Spike and Drusilla. Angel, he teams up with Xander at one point. You have Willow and Cordelia together. They're stuck in the cupboard, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you're really starting to see a lot of different characters intermingle for the first time and i think the one thing that was interesting about buffy in the longer term was that they did try and throw in different combinations of characters at different times mm. to see just how they would interact with each other they never had a hierarchy of this person interact with this person this person interact with this person. i mean there was lots of mixing up between the relationships that they had and to show them in different contexts always brought out different aspects of the characters as well yeah and it's especially fun when they pair off characters in pairings where they can't stand each other mm. so when you end up with Willow and Cordelia stuck in the cupboard together yeah. and Willow is just exasperated by and wants to get out yeah. and, and Sandra and Angel who have always hated each other and always will basically jumping ahead to season three immediately <laughs> we've chosen Anne which is the season opener yeah I, I really really love this episode if I had to pick a favorite episode it would be really hard but I think this would be one of the finalists mm. um and it's I, I've tried hard to think about why it is that I, that I like it so much because it's a very non-canonical episode Buffy's away from everyone else for pretty much the entire thing but I, I love how you see the rest of the Scooby gang soldiering on in her absence mm. trying to fight the vampires failing spectacularly at times mm. um, being a bit hopeless but having been brought into this world of vampires and demons they are determined that they're going to keep fighting the good fight even if the Slayer isn't around and that's a very important message, I think, that resonates throughout the whole of Buffy, um, that you don't necessarily have to be the Slayer to mm. actually make a difference and do something. But it does begin that weird aspect of them not really discussing how they feel about Buffy not being there. Yeah. And whether they're not sure why, well, why she's gone, when she's going to return. But they've clearly inspired something in them to, to keep fighting but they don't really know what the end game is. And there's clearly a, a bit of a panic about it, but they don't really want to address that. They'd rather just carry on, presuming that they're holding the fort until Buffy does return. So their hope is that she does and she will, but they don't really want to talk about it. Yeah. So it's easier to distract themselves by continuing. 
I think the other aspect of it is what happens to Buffy in the episode. Yeah, so Buffy herself is hundreds of miles away. She's run off because she finds it very difficult to cope with the events of the end of season two. Yeah. She's working as a waitress under the fake name of Anne, which is actually her middle name. And she's living in a dingy flat somewhere and basically just getting by, trying not to think about anything. And she gets embroiled in the lives of these two uh, sort of other teenage runaways. And one of them's from the vampire cult episode. She returns because yeah. she recognises Buffy. Yeah, so Lily, who used to be Chanterelle, which was a mushroom, <laughs> and who has had many names over the years, and she's sort of a very fragile character who has moved from sort of cult to cult. Yeah. Not Aligns really... herself with something that she can be part of and identify yeah, with. Exactly. Um, has, I, I suppose, felt unable to stand on her own. And she's now in this relationship um, with this guy who disappears. And then Buffy discovers what is apparently him because he has the same tattoos but as a very old man and realises that there's something supernatural going on people are disappearing and dying and even though she has run away to try and get away from being the Slayer she finds she actually can't get away from being the Slayer and from helping people which is an important aspect because although they always refer to this character as the chosen one there are very few times when they outside of the context of what happens in Sunnydale talk about the fact that it's innate in Buffy. It's something in her that will make her always want to help people, even if she doesn't know why or whether it's the best thing to do, because she doesn't really want to interfere that much. She feels that she's left the demon fighting behind in, in Sunnydale. Mm. She really uh, naturally has a, a talent and a desire to want to help people. And this is, and it's almost like she can't resist getting involved. And when she does, I think it sets up a really interesting story about the nature of trying to run away from problems isolation you know more broadly it's it's the thing that Buffy always did very well which was trying to turn this science fiction show into a way that they could explore lots of different themes that teenagers might go through in high school the feelings that people have how they interrelate with people all these different more complicated things were always dealt with in the context of a show about a girl who fights vampires with her friends yeah, and I, I was reminded of this episode recently because we were watching Supergirl yeah. and there was an episode where people were, were disappearing and they were being um, taken through some wormhole to another planet where they were basically being used as slaves because human beings were, you know, very useful. I, I, to be honest, I was only <laughs> half watching the episode, but it was something like that. And it reminded me of this episode, but without any of the intelligent subtext to yeah. it. It was just, you, you realise how well-crafted an episode like Anne is mm. when you see a slightly half-assed version yeah. of a similar kind of story done elsewhere. Yeah. But without any of the subtlety. Yeah. It's a strange episode. It kind of, you know, it showed that Buffy had evolved over the first two seasons. Mm. It wasn't a show, for example, that was going to have arcs that lasted a few episodes or even a season these there were events that would have repercussions across multiple seasons and this was the first evidence that the responsibility that Buffy had was overwhelming mm. and I think it was important because it showed her growth as a you know as a hero and a leader the fact that the doubts that she has and the nature of how it affects her personal life became for this moment at least, too much for her to handle. Mm. But she finds the strength 
to continue with things and it's all part of the growing experience that Buffy always showed and I think it was weird to have an episode where it's split like you said the Scoobies from Buffy and yet they both as groups move forward and then they combine later on obviously it's also interesting that the the Scoobies without Buffy are in some ways trying to carry on her fight against the vampires and then at the very end of the episode when she's leaving LA and returning home and Lily slash Chantrell slash whatever her real name is, I don't think I don't think she ever actually reveals mm. her real name, is going to step into Buffy's life that she has built in LA. So yeah. taking over her flat, her job as a waitress. She even asks if she can be Anne yeah. from that point on and take over the name. And it's so it's like even in LA she's leaving behind a template that someone else can live their life mm. and find strength and actually carry on and build something of her lives with. And that she has done that in both places. She's mm. done it in Sunnydale and then she's doing it again in LA and going home. And it's it's a motif that I think comes back time and again that she sets these examples of being strong and living your life mm. for other characters. Um and also I think in some ways for the audience as well. Yeah. I think it was it was it was well ahead of its time. It's pretty white still resonates today because you can watch it and you get a lot out of it. That episode also has one of my all-time favourite fight scenes in. When she's actually in the kind of hell dimension, yeah. where they all are, it, it's the bit where the, the others are all escaping and they have those fights on top of these kind of vats of mm. I don't know what they're supposed to be. I just love that fight scene for some reason. I don't know why. It's one of my favourites. I think in terms of the uh, the bad guys in it as well, I'm pretty certain, I think along with the demons that turn up invading Sunnydale in bargaining, all I remember was those things were straight out of Hellraiser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was it was very jarring to have a season opener where the makeup budget had gone up and all of a sudden they had these really weird they were weird looking yeah. demon things, weren't they? With like their mouths were sewn shut or something and they were all demonic and weird. It was mm. very different from having what's his face? Who was the robot the robot demon dude? Moloch. Oh, Moloch. <laughs> you know there was there's a big jump you can trace from how how they dealt with these monsters as slightly hokey things to these very demonic presences i think it was a very dark episode but it was also important that context of that darkness buffy is like the light that guides everyone through it and comes out the other end Mm. so i think that was a fantastic one yeah next up is uh band candy (laughs) so band candy is just a funny episode it's the one where well it's the first appearance of ethan rain uh second appearance first one is the halloween halloween Halloween. yeah Yeah. it's the one where he turns up and he's got that factory which is making chocolates which uh, sunnydale is selling as part of like something to raise money for band yeah and all of the chocolates uh basically turn all adults into younger versions of themselves yeah so he's been hired to do this by mr trick who is yeah. now working for the mayor and that's and, the, and he's the big bad for the whole season three yeah. yeah so the idea is that by turning all the adults into teenagers they can distract them for long enough to carry out their other nefarious mm. plans it's sort of means to an end uh, but it's nice to have ethan rain back yeah and it's not the last we see of him he's yeah. a good character i think it's a character from giles's past yeah he becomes he doesn't turn up very frequently, but when he does, he adds a lot to it. And it, and it adds a lot to Giles' character as well. Yeah. You, you get to see for the first time, really, the, the slightly jarring Giles of the past. It's been hinted at before, I think. So you, you've had this reference to the fact that Giles' past was not always as a bookish, <laughs> uh, slightly stuffy librarian. Yeah. 
And for the first time, when he gets turned into a teenage version of Giles, mm. you start to see actually what he might have yeah. been like in the past, which is very interesting. Like the kind of rebellious, young, wild Giles. Also, it's that picture that they show of him. That must be a real picture. There's a real picture of of Anthony Stewart Head yeah. in his younger days. But he, he was. I think it was cool because it suddenly put all these adult characters to the forefront of the story. Yeah. And obviously switching it by having the younger characters behave like the grown-ups trying to work out you know why their parents and uh why the teachers etc are all behaving like they are mm-hmm. it was kind of funny to have that reversal but it showed the the range of acting that existed in these minor characters so you got some great stuff from joyce from giles and principal snyder oh uh, yeah <laughs> who turns into this really annoying weaselly like really by you can kind of imagine him being exactly like that when he was at school and how essentially he's gone from being this powerless nerd as a teenager to being somebody who's high on the power of being the principal of Sunnydale. You <laughs> yeah. can see these transitions. It's really fun to watch. And he's he's constantly hanging on to Buffy and Willow, etc., isn't it, when they're trying to sort things out. Yeah. And he's just so it's it's weird. He's the one character who hasn't who hasn't changed, I suppose in some <laughs> respect. He's still exactly the same guy but now he's in a suit and he's older yeah you know but also it allowed him to have something um in the episode some you know to do something in the episode as well yeah he, he now has the power to punish the kids who wouldn't hang out with him yeah. when he was younger basically but he must have tried so hard it's kind of tragic to watch mm. but then because you know what he's like now you also can't sympathize with him too much <laughs> the the sort of relationship between giles and joyce yeah it's kind of interesting because they went from having, you know, huge secrets between them with, mm. with Joyce in the dark about, about Buffy being the Slayer. Mm. And then Joyce blames Giles for a while after Buffy disappears because she's saying, you kept this big secret from me and I'm her mother and I should have known what's mm. going on. And so although they are effectively the parental figures in Buffy's life, they have kind of very much been, you know, there's been a wall between them up until this episode mm. where suddenly all the walls come down. <laughs> On top of a police car. <laughs> yeah. I think I think it's just it's it it allows that relationship to move forward yeah. completely. And I think it's done in a way that could only have been done in this context. Yeah. Otherwise it would have been one of those things where for a season they would have been talking to each other as Buffy's mum and Buffy's watcher and they may have come on come onto the same side of things, but they would never well it would just dragged out. Yeah, for a long time. Whereas here, it just gets sorted out. And the fact that they can remember it as well. Yeah. They can remember how they behave. I think that's even better. Yeah. Um, to see how Buffy reacts to them and also sees her parental figures in a completely different light as well. Yeah. It just changes the dynamic. It completely mixes it up mm. and establishes lots of things that become important for the rest of the um, season as well. Yeah. It also has a brilliant payoff in the Earshot episode where Buffy's psychic ability, yeah, yeah. she reads her mum's mind and <laughs> finds out what happened. And then right at the end, she tells Giles and he walks into a tree. <laughs> it's one of my favourite moments of Buffy ever. Playing the, really playing the long game in this sometimes. <laughs> so next, Doppelgangland and The Wish. Those two together? Yeah, so we, we, we sort of talked about both episodes and it, you can't really separate them because mm. it's Vampire Willow. Yeah. And The Wish came first. That's the one that introduces Anya. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the wish, Cordelia wishes that Buffy never came to Sunnydale and it's a classic kind of what-if alternate reality yeah. type episode where you see the um, what would have happened to the town if Buffy had gone to be a slayer somewhere yeah. else. 
so the master is risen and half her friends are vampires a lot of them are dead uh it, it, it sort of ends tragically and it, it's a, a sort of classic you know where would any of them be without each other kind of episode it takes all of them and in the end even when Buffy does turn up she can't defeat the master by herself now that he's risen mm. um and it's very much a Buffy needs the Scoobies, the Scoobies need Buffy in order for this to work kind of episode. But it introduces the vampire version of Willow, yeah. who then gets dragged through into into this reality and this timeline by Anya and Willow together when Anya's trying to get her powers back. So it gets, it's a very funny episode, and it's an episode that gives Alison Hannigan this kind of perfect role of being mm. able to play good Willow and evil Willow at the yeah. same time. Very, very funny. The other interesting thing about introducing Dark Willow is not only is she a funny character and one who's a good play on uh, Willow as well, but actually it's the first indication, although it's well ahead of time, actually, that Willow's going to turn out to be gay as well. Yeah. And I think the way it's the way they, they have a subtle moment in it. Yeah, so it, it's, it's the scene where they're all together in the library and Angel is there. Willow is talking to the others about how weird it is to mm. have seen the, you know, the vampire version of herself. And at some point, Willow is all the kind of a throwaway remark mm. says, I, "I think the vampire me is kind of gay," um, in that I think I think she might be gay. Mm. And Buffy says something like, "Oh well, you have to remember, Willow, you know, the the vampire versions of people aren't the same as the as who they were when they mm. were a human being." And, and Angel steps in. Yeah, yeah, he says he starts to say, "Well, actually, I." And then he thinks better of it and shuts up and says, never mind. But I think that was like, it's an odd moment because the payoff isn't for a while. Um, it's, well, it does appear in Doppelgangland, doesn't it? I think it was a hint that they were really trying to move the characters around a little bit as well. And I think it was important because ultimately Willow becomes one of the f- first openly gay main characters in a sort of a major um, science fiction show. I think really at that point yeah and and for the rest you know for her character to then the character of tara becomes so important yeah. from season four onwards and that whole relationship becomes it's so central to, it's so central to everything that happens later on yeah um and i think it's i think yeah the seed is kind of planted in this episode yeah and, and i it don't builds know and builds and builds yeah yeah i don't know if they had already decided at that point that that's what they were going to yeah. do in season four and they were foreshadowing it there or if they decided later on actually go with it it's hard to know but i do think they did plan these things out because there's always the bit i always remember is the bit at the end of season three is it season three when buffy and faith are in that shared dream yeah and then faith alludes to dawn appearing in season five and there's lots of moments where they're clearly thinking a little bit ahead but you're not sure if they just left it relatively open that they could uh, they could do things with it but yeah, I think it was a, it's a good episode because it discusses a lot of these themes, like you know, you know what would happen in the world without Buffy, etc. But it does start to again move the characters around a little bit and start to put them in different contexts. And actually, I think it's important in the very long term for the development of Willow as a character as well. Yeah, and it's another episode that shows how much, how strong they are as a team and how much they need each other. There's that scene in the library where they think that Willow's dead because they've seen <laughs> the vampire Willow in the bronze and. It's it's Buffy and Zander and Giles sitting around looking glum, thinking that Willow is gone. And they're all talking about how, oh yeah, she was the best of all of us. And Zander's like, yeah, 
She's way better than me. <laughs> and then when Goodwillow turns up and she's alive, yeah. Buffy and Xander just kind of leap on her and speak the teenage joyful hug. And then once they're finished, Giles leaps on her for a hug as well. And you realise actually those core four people mm. who are in it from you know, episode one all the way through to the very end, it needs all of them and it can yeah. work without, without any of them. So we'll skip ahead to the end of uh, season three with Graduation Day, parts one and two. Yeah, so we're we're doing a lot of season three, and I think it highlights how strong that was as a season. Yeah, they really found their, their footing in this. Yeah. yeah, there were other episodes we could have picked, I yeah. think, if we hadn't just wanted to make this our favourite season three episode. Mm. So Graduation Day is really the culmination of everything they've been doing for three years, mm. not just in terms of the plotting and the storyline, but in terms of how the characters have developed, yeah. and even how quite minor characters that have been around in the background, like Harmony and people like Jonathan that. Jonathan and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, they, how they all start to kind of come into their own in small mm. ways in the background as the, the big finale happens. Yeah. And again, it's it comes down to the ability that Buffy has to not just fight on her own, but to lead other people yeah. and take other people on this journey with her. And the transition from being somebody who's fighting vampires on her own to being one who fights with the Scoobies to being one who is fighting in an environment where after the prom, etc., it's clear that everyone knows what's going on yeah. and they know that she is the Slayer and she's been saving them all the time. There's something nice about having all of these characters come together. You know, it's an environment which has been played as potentially quite hostile you know like high school is hell all this business you know it's it's a tough place but ultimately there is something that brings them all together and it's her as yeah. well and i think to have graduation day as the as the allegory for sort of you know everyone coming together and then knowing they're going to move on and separate afterwards but it, it in itself is a big event i think that was a really clever episode that covers a lot in terms of buffy and angel because angel decides to move on mm. showing up until that point the big sort of final fight that they that they have to do and the clever idea of having the era in high school ending at season three rather than carrying on for the whole duration of Buffy as well. Yeah, so they, they didn't try and keep them in high school forever, which they could have done. They could have just ignored the fact they're all getting older. Um, but by saying, actually, we're going we're gonna to move on, we're going to have a new environment. Mm -hmm. new and everyone challenges. has to grow up. And, yeah, yeah. And, and the story is going to grow up with them. And the things they're going to have to face are going to grow up with them. There's there's so many big changes. It was a brave decision to write Angel out of it. Yeah. Because he'd been such a big presence in the show up to that point. And say, actually, this isn't the big mm. love story. And her life is going to carry on and be yeah, so Yeah, it's not going to be defined by these events. And the fact that they, if you look back as well, those are events which seemed like the most important things in the world mm. for those episodes. But then you flash forward six months and everyone's moved on. And it was a weird idea that they were showing how huge events in somebody's life, ultimately you can move on from them. Yeah. Or they become less significant over time, or they become just an event in the past that you look beyond in the future. Yeah. They're just things that happen. They're part of your history. Um, they don't always define you. And I think also in terms of having Mayor Wilkins turn to a big giant demon thing was also really good. <laughs> and eat Snyder. <laughs> yeah. So Snyder finally kind of gets some comeuppance yeah. for effectively being on team mayor this whole time, yeah. even if he hadn't necessarily realised that the mayor was going to turn to a giant demon. But but having deliberately turned a blind eye to the reality of what was going on and just tried to protect his own position this whole time. 
and then you have the symbolic destruction of the entire school mm. uh, to sort of give wave farewell to that era of Buffy and usher in a new era. But I remember that when I watched it, I was actually really sad. And it was only when I watched The Freshman afterwards that mm-hmm. I got even sadder. Because <laughs> it was a weird thing to suddenly... It felt very alienating to have them leave the high school environment and be in a different place. Yeah. And it took me a while after watching it to realise that was the whole point, that it is a very alienating experience to take you out of your comfort zone and mm-hmm. move you into a different environment where suddenly you're the lowest rung of the ladder in a very big pond again. Yeah. Um, to mix all kinds of metaphors now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure the town gets weirdly larger in yeah. season four because since when was there a university yeah. campus on the So that, I'm going to go to UC Sunnydale. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's gone from being a, a one Starbucks town, as it's referred to yeah. in uh, Welcome to Hellmouth, to having an, a university campus as part of the University of California. But yeah, they needed to expand. They opened the world up and that's what yeah. happens. These things are pliable. You can say, oh, actually, if you go down that road, there's a university over there. <laughs> So moving on to season four, and there's an episode which is probably on pretty much everyone's list of favourite Buffy episodes. Hush. 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 don't know why I said it like that. (laughs) But yeah, that's the story of the gentleman. Mm. The strange, spooky, slightly ethereal, weird, demonic, skeletal people who walk around in suits. Yeah. They, uh, there's a... They've got these creepy minions um, as well who who go around with them. I don't think they even get a name. They're yeah. just the gentleman's minions. Yeah. And then they oh, there's that weird girl who's da- saying that rhyme over and over again about the gentleman. Yeah. It's got the. I mean, there are so many things that happen, but basically, um, they all lose the power of speech mm. in this episode when the gentleman comes to town. Um, it's just a very spooky episode that showed that Buffy could, when it wants to, do a flat-out horror episode. I think mm. it's it's a it's a terrifying episode to watch, and it's so dark. I think the whole concept of it, it's like a fairy tale, but a very a very dark fairy tale that's taking place, and they're caught up in it as well. Yeah, it it it's a fairy tale in the sense of a proper Grimm Brothers fairy yeah. tale, rather than a Disneyfied fairy tale. In that several people do actually get their hearts cut out yeah. in the process of the episode, and it's it's a very high concept episode. You know, I, they, they must have started with the idea of, well, what if we do an episode where no one can speak yeah. and everyone has to communicate by writing or by yeah. gesture or something like that. Well, Giles has that bit where he does that that, that um, overhead projector thing. <laughs> 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 to the, um, he's playing Dance Macabre in the background. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they do what Buffy does really well, which is take these high-concept episodes and fill them chock-filled f- with... They chock fill them with chock fills. <laughs> they, they chock fill them. They're chock full of really important plot developments and character developments mm. for for so many different people within the episode. I suppose the, t- the two big ones are Buffy and Riley at the end of the episode. They realise one realise well, so Riley realises that Buffy is a slayer, and Buffy realises that Riley is part of this mysterious organisation initiative, which they've hinted at in the previous few episodes. Yeah. And it, it's a revelation that you knew had to be coming at some point, but to to throw it in right at the end of a big high concept episode mm. like this uh, is something that Buffy does really well. Yeah. But the other really important character point, and it's a much more subtle one, is actually between Willow and Tara, mm. where they're kind of friends up to that point, and you can see the potentially the beginnings of a relationship. 
but I think is actually when they are running away from gentlemen together and one of them hurts her ankle and they they combine their sort of magical powers together mm. to push a, a giant um, vending machine up against the door or something like that and there's this connection and spark between them mm. that you see and and you, you can feel it in the episode mm. um, I think it, yeah again it just moves it moves the story forward under the guise of it being this this high concept episode so many interesting things happen like subtle moments that really play out as well um, I think in that same way it's like it's like the episode before the body which I can't remember what it was but you know how they put a really important plot point, uh, namely in that episode, Joyce dying at the end of an otherwise completely mundane Monster of the Week episode. Is it the one yeah. with the robot? The robot girlfriend or something? Yeah, it is the one. It's the one where Warren makes the, the robot girlfriend. Mm. And I think, yeah, this idea that they can have these very high concept episodes, but do really interesting things with them and have these big emotional moments at the end. Yeah. I think that, that was really cool with those. They're, they're also really good villains who have become iconic without ever needing to have come back they, ne- they they never had to bring the gentleman back in any respect they appeared in one episode but they are iconic villains yeah. and um, there are a few shows that could do that yeah um i think the x-files did it potentially with eugene tombs who was in a couple of episodes in the first season but everyone knows him as the weird stretchy contortionist villain um, like long after the episodes aired, he's like he's iconic for that. And that same thing about uh, the Fluke Man and that, that weird half worm, half man thing mm, that popped yeah. up. And lots of shows could do that. They would have a really iconic villain appearing once, maybe twice, um, but they would have a a big presence in the episode. Mm. You would never see them again, but you would know about them. They were part of the lore of that TV show. And I think when it kind of goes wrong, it's potentially something like the Weeping Angels. Yeah, so it was a shame because after the Don't Blink episode of Doctor Who, the Weeping Angels were fantastic villains. Yeah. It, it, it seemed to be a completely one-off thing that they were going to be in that episode. There, there didn't have to be a big explanation of their origins or any kind of mythology about them. They were just there and they were really creepy. And it added to them in that they just appeared, they were dealt with and they were gone. They were part of Doctor Who mythology. And then they went and ruined it by continually bringing them back again and again yeah. and trying to explain things about them in ways that didn't make any sense and then eventually they overused them and they lose their power completely and it actually does although blink is still a brilliant episode it does tarnish i think the reputation of the weeping angels even to have used them less frequently would have been a good thing. Mm. but this is not about doctor who it's about no. buffy <laughs> so we'll stay on track the next one is a new man ah yes which is never put on people's lists of favorite <laughs> episodes mm. is it the fir- yeah it's the first proper episode where Giles and Spike are put into their own little caper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what's the setup to that one? It's got Ethan Rain showing up. Yeah, Ethan Rain shows up and he goes out drinking with Giles yeah. and he slips something into Giles's drink and in the morning Giles wakes up and he's turned into a demon. Yeah. Uh, and he's still Giles on the inside, but he's a demon on the outside. And as time goes by, he realises that even on the inside, he's starting to turn into this yeah demonic being yeah and it's only a matter of time before giles himself is completely gone and i think the you know buffy was a very clever show it wasn't just about giles turning into a, a demon <laughs> and being reversed it was about giles's role as part of the the whole buffy mythology so he was no longer officially buffy's watcher mm. the scoobies were still together but obviously with 
the library being destroyed as part of uh, the school being destroyed and um, the characters moving on to university. Everyone was kind of going their separate ways. And certainly there was an element of Buffy drifting away from Giles and moving towards the initiative where Maggie Walsh was potentially being lined up as a new mental character to her. Mm -hmm. And Giles was feeling left out of everything. He felt that his role was over. He felt that he was no longer relevant or part of the team. He has some interesting interactions with Maggie Walsh in that episode as well. Yeah, um, where she she makes him feel pretty useless Yeah, uh, in the chat they have together. And then he, about 15 minutes in, there's this transformation that happens. And I think it leads to some of the funniest Giles moments <laughs> of the whole series. The bits where he and Spike are in that tiny little car and Spike's driving him around. Oh yeah, and Spike's the only one who can understand him because he's speaking in another language. So, yeah. so first, Giles, as this demon, tries to go and find help from Xander, mm. and he's obviously shouting, trying to you know get Xander to understand, but he doesn't realise that he's speaking a different tongue, and Xander can't hear him. So I think Xander just starts throwing plates at him or something <laughs> to get him get you know <laughs> get rid of him. And it has these moments where he's kind of lumbering around, running through people's gardens and things, trying to get away from everything, and he has a cloak on, and the only person who uh, understands him is uh, is Spike and it puts these two characters who are polar opposites up until now mm-hmm. both together potentially as a way to keep them both in the Buffy storyline really because they're both peripheral to what's going on but yeah. you want to put them together and it's just funny to watch uh, Giles running around and then they, you know when he tries to pick up his phone he kind of crushes it he puts his hand <laughs> through walls and, <laughs> my favourite screaming sound of all the Buffy demons <laughs> Um, he he also gets to take a uh, a minor bit of revenge on Maggie Walsh when he sees her walking down the street. So he jumps <laughs> up out of the car and runs after. Her. <laughs> so then we kind of skip all the way to the end of season five. Yeah, because Riley's in it uh, <laughs> between between uh, most of season four and some of season five, and he was not a favourite character. No, I don't think he was anyone's favourite character. <laughs> no. It's not good having him around. <laughs> it's not good. I'm sorry, but he was not he was not the right character to replace the love interest at all. No. And and also the other problem with season five was Glory as the villain. Um, not the finest big bad that yeah. Buffy's ever had. She was a good concept, but I wasn't that keen on the execution mm. because it was very repetitive. Yeah. I think the idea of having Buffy going up against a god was really cool. But the one thing that really annoyed me about season five it was probably the only thing that really upset me was the fact that, you know, there's that previously on Buffy the Vampire Slayer thing. Yeah, yeah. Every episode is basically the same. <laughs> because the setup of having Dawn appearing and having Glory as the big bad, they use the same clips over and over again for the whole season because nothing really happens mm. in terms of that dynamic. And it's a shame because I think season five, the big bad of Glory was not the main thing. Mm. It was actually about the other things that happened. It was really the season when Buffy had to grow up. Yeah. You, ha- you have episodes like The Body, where Joyce dies. You have the consequence of that, where Buffy is forced to realise that she's she is older now. She has to take on more responsibility. She now has to look after Dawn. There's a few interesting episodes which crossed over with Angel in this season as well. Yeah, yeah. There's just lots going on in this season. And I think the most important thing was actually it was really about potentially moving the plot away from a big bad as a central focus to being about the arc that Buffy is going to have. And I think it's a very good ending in The Gift to have all 
all five seasons culminate in the events that take place. Yeah, I think if it had ended at that point and hadn't come back on a different network, it would have been a fairly perfect ending. Yeah. She saved the world a lot. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. You know, it had it had lots of characters reaching interesting stopping points in their arcs. Everyone moves forward and everyone does something in this episode. Yeah. So you have um, Willow becoming a lot more powerful. Yeah. Uh, and and ultimately being able to sort of bring Tara back yeah. from from the state that Gloria's left her in, uh, you have Spike really starting on the road to redemption, even though he doesn't have a soul yeah. yet. He is kind of now fighting with them through choice rather than through anything yeah. else. And it's interesting that in some respects, it's because he feels very protective of Dawn yeah. rather than anything else that gets him to sort of half join up with the Scoobies. Yeah. And there's that, that moral ambiguity over whether it's, well, whether how much of it is for Dawn and how much of it is for Buffy. But then yeah. even for him, it becomes confusing because yeah. he feels so attached to Dawn who's feeling left out as a younger person. And certainly when the revelation about Dawn is revealed to Dawn and all the other characters, etc., it becomes quite troubling for him. Mm. Um, and he's forced to almost feel emotions that he is not used to feeling uh, in his former self. Yeah. You also have the quite chilling moment at the end with Giles where um, Gloria reverts back into being Ben mm. again and Giles just takes him out yeah. while he's lying helpless on the floor. Yeah. It's a callback to the you know, the idea that, that, that Giles was more than they know before he became a Watcher. There's that cold streak in him yeah. which comes up here. And it's like the first time it's ever showed on screen, isn't it? He really is. He's tough. He will do what needs to get done. He is not this foppish Hugh Grant librarian dude who bumbles around, always confused by what's you know by by, by well by what's going on or the mm. fighting aspect. He always takes a step back from that. You know, he's not just the brains behind the operation. He clearly was trained as somebody who knew how to look after himself, and he knew what had to be done in the fight against evil, and he was willing to do it. Yeah, he says at one point, "I you know I'm not a hero, or people like us we're not heroes." Yeah. But he, he's going to do what is necessary in order to save the world, yeah. even if it's an unheroic act yeah. at the time. Yeah, moving on to season six, yeah. when it gets a new life on a new channel. The first one we come to is probably the most obvious choice that anyone is going to put on any list of favourite Buffy episodes. With good reason. Yes. Once more with feeling. Yeah. So it's the musical episode, yeah. as it's known. That's basically, <laughs> that's basically how it's known. It's the musical episode. People have watched one episode of Buffy <laughs> as their only episode and that is it yeah it's an episode where if you do watch it and you've never seen Buffy before it makes you want to go back and see exactly what has brought this show to do this it's a fantastic episode so it deals with the aftermath of the events of the gift when Buffy is killed and then her resurrection by her friends in mm. bargaining at the beginning of the season it has one of the characters who keeps some surprise there <laughs> summoning a demon who makes everyone turn to song and dance and to burst into song all the time. Mm. The underlying um, effect being that, like a real musical where people's words are replaced with songs, uh, the songs that people sing on their own or in group numbers, etc., are all ones which uh, reveal people's innermost secrets, things that they've been keeping from each other, which allows all these revelations to come to the fore under the guise of this big sunny musical episode. Yeah, so you get things like the duet between Sandra and Anya 
they're engaged at this point um, they're planning their wedding and you, you start to see the fractures in that relationship as they're doing this kind of wacky bright song and dance mm. number so um, I'll never tell and they're talking about all the things that really bug them about each other yeah but how they're still gonna stay together etc yeah. in spite of all that there's also the song that Spike sings to Buffy yeah. um, in which he basically declares his yeah. love for her yeah yeah um, in a slightly warped fashion yeah Buffy sometimes has songs where she's on her own, but it's still revealing the truth of the fact that she finds it difficult to connect to anything anymore. She's just wake Going, up, yeah. slay vampires, do stuff, go to sleep again. But Going what's... through the motions, you might say. <laughs> you might say. You might say. But what's what's the point? Yeah. What's really the point? And then the, the final big revelation when everyone is in the bronze uh, and she's does the big number at the end, which reveals the truth about where she was when she was dead. And where she wasn't in hell, as they'd suspected, uh, but she was actually in heaven after she'd been killed. And this spell that Willow had performed had actually pulled her out of that and brought her back into the real world. Yeah, which uh, is why she can't really cope with it. Yeah. And suddenly you realise that this, again, you know, under the whim of having this high concept episode, there is a real blunt force moment at the end of, that changes how you view everything that's happened. It cuts through all the saccharine elements of doing musical numbers and songs. Any of the comedy kind of washes out immediately. And there's a moment when all the characters are left realising what's happened. And this demon suite is like, uh, this is a bit too much for even me. I'm going to go now. <laughs> I think I've done my job here. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a, it's a really clever episode. I mean, the songs are actually good. Yeah. Which is unusual. It's you know these aren't just generic pop songs or things that they've incorporated. They're ones that were written specifically for the episode, and they're really good songs. And they actually do function like a musical should, which is they replace dialogue. They get mm. the plot moving. They they um, cover what people are feeling, how they want to communicate in the form of these songs. And they're all fantastic. And they're all very memorable. It's one of the ones which famously people sing along to when they're watching. And the soundtrack was released on its own. I think they used to have screenings of it where people could do like a sing-along Buffy episode and things, and they stopped that after one. It, it kind of started a trend for people wanting to have musical episodes in these big sort of genre TV shows. Mm. It wasn't the first show to do a musical Xena episode. had one. Yeah. But don't tell me how I know that. <laughs> Xena had. It had two, actually. But it was one that I think really popularised the idea to the point where now people talk about oh, will such and such a show ever have a musical episode? Yeah. It's I just think... a thing you do now. I mean, even now, I'm sure somebody even said, oh, I, I, you know, I think there should be a, a musical Doctor Who episode and things. And you know yeah. exactly what their reference point is. Yeah. You know, it's doing a, doing a musical episode is basically doing a once more with feeling with your show. Yeah. I don't think if you try and force it, it will never be possible to reach the same standard. There's one coming up soon, isn't there? Yeah, so there's a Flash and Supergirl crossover episode that's going to be a musical episode. I think it's airs pretty soon in the US so yeah. it must be here quite soon too might be a couple of weeks yeah how successful it is we don't know yet but it's it's something that I think would not have even been considered yeah. had Buffy not already done it so brilliantly yeah it's one of those things where Buffy had a following that allowed it to really play around with its own formula a little bit mm. you know it's not and this is a it's a very important statement here it's not NCIS <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not that that procedural kind of show it's not a, there's no formula to it they did what was necessary to 
take these characters on a journey over these seven seasons. Uh, so doing a musical episode, it wasn't a case of let's just do one for the sake of doing one. There was a reason to use that as a device to move the story forward. And also it's important because in season seven, there's actually a callback to that, isn't there? When, is it selfless? Yeah. The, the, when Anya the, has a flashback. Yeah, when you see flashbacks to all of Anya's life and yeah. you see an, an unseen song yeah. from that that yeah. day when everyone was singing and dancing. Very clever. Very clever. Yeah. You wouldn't get that in NCIS. <laughs> <laughs> so the next episode is the very next episode, uh, Tabula Rasa, where Willow, she wants to make Tara forget the fact that she had cast a spell on her um, because Tara is unhappy that Willow's using too much magic and she's worried that she's going to leave her so she tries to cast a spell to make Tara forget what's happened but she inadvertently makes everyone forget who they are completely and everyone wakes up in the magic box with no idea of their identity and a bunch of monsters trying to kill them yeah and trying to figure out how who they are how they relate to each other and again it's that thing where they just completely subvert the formula because they have all these characters waking up trying to work out based on what they're wearing who they're with how they talk you know yeah, trying so... to work out who they all are and how they interrelate with each other and what the hell is going on and then certainly about you know um and suddenly uh vampires show up and it creates even more chaos because they have no idea what's happening yeah anya thinks that she must be married to giles because she's wearing an engagement ring and they co-own the magic box together yeah and it's actually the one that sander gave her yeah and then giles and spike decide they must be father and son because yeah. they're both English. <laughs> and uh, Zandra and Willow think that they might be a couple, but then you, you realise that Willow is obviously becoming attracted to Tara, yeah. who doesn't know who she is. The only people who get it right are Buffy and Dawn, who realise they're sisters. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, they, they're just kind of... It's a great ensemble episode because they're floundering around trying to figure these things out. You get some really good comedy moments. Yeah. Everyone gets to do something a bit different with their character, yeah. where they are. You can see their true selves starting to come out, yeah. but they don't really understand how to be themselves. Yeah. And so they're set. It's like at the beginning, they all think they're one set of characters, mm. just based on very superficial observations. Yeah. But their innate personalities draw them to the correct relationships that they're meant to be in, yeah. which creates a bit of confusion, but then it starts to make sense to them a lot more. And it's funny because, uh, is it Spike who thinks he's called Randy Giles? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the last one on the list is for season six, Double Meat Palace. <laughs> Again, it's not one that people hold up as the finest hour of Buffy ever. Yeah, so this is a fantastic episode, which is about the idea that slaying doesn't pay the bills. I suppose it's about everyone growing up. It, yeah, it has to deal with the fact that Buffy has to get a job. It deals with the slightly mundane nature of work that most people have to do. Mm. And putting Buffy in that context is really interesting just because her initial response of working in a fast food chain is complete disinterest in the whole thing. Mm. But also constantly trying to look for slightly supernatural things that might be going on, and this suspicion that she has about what's in the what it's called—it's the double meat the burger. They double have. meat patties. The yeah. double meat patties, and her investigation thinks there's maybe something really sinister going on, because that's her natural sort of intuitive thing—is to find problems where they're on. And certainly in a in a mundane job, 
uh, given that she's out of hours, the Slayer, um, or arguably the other way around, um, <laughs> she's trying to look for something and look for something weird and supernatural that's going on. Yeah, it's also an episode that always makes me really hungry <laughs> because, because I really want one of those burgers. <laughs> I wonder if we compiled this episode when we were really hungry. That's why it's on the list. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, it's about being grown up and dealing with the real world. I think her job in Double Meat Palace is probably more true than when she becomes a counsellor at the school in later on in season seven. Yeah. I think. Because this is like her just taking a job because she needs the money. She's Giles has kind of vacated his role as a as a senior advisor to her, which is kind of what he'd become after being a watcher. And so now she's left to kind of fend for herself. She has bills to pay, she has Dawn to look after, she's trying to work out what to do. And also everyone has started to grow up a little bit in terms of finding jobs and setting themselves along more adult paths of responsibility. I think at this point, Xander is already working at the building site, isn't he? Yeah, mm. so so he's already got a career that's already starting to go somewhere. Yep. Um, you know, he, he started doing construction as a job, but you, you see over the course of this season, I think, there's that replacement episode where yeah. he gets a promotion and he... he but it's his other version of himself yeah. and he thinks that this can't possibly be me. I can't mm. possibly be getting a promotion. So he's already starting to build a life. And then you've got Willow and Tara who are still at university. And Buffy is thinking, well, is this it for me? Am I yeah. going to be doing this job for the next 10, 20 years in order to just be able to pay the bills and make sure that Dawn can go to school and do whatever she wants to do? It, it's a very difficult but realistic look at what it means to have to be a grown-up sometimes. Yeah, And how difficult it is on its own without having to be the Slayer as well. And then, initially, I think we didn't pick anything from Season 7. Yeah, And Season 7 is a difficult season. Even when we re-watch it, I don't think we've ever actually re-watched every single episode. Yeah, there are some which you just skip over because it's painful to see some of the episodes. So the introduction of the potential Slayers... Mm. Two. Oh, the two with the bad English accents. It's just... It's like a Cockney one. Yeah, it's, it's so painful to listen to. It wasn't as well handled as you would expect from Buffy. The whole the whole arc. Yeah. It was a very clumsily handled arc. This whole idea of the potential slayers and eventually the preacher who shows up. All these different things. It was trying to tie the show up in some way. But there wasn't much meat to the overall plot. There was Spike in the basement of the school. Yeah. There's lots of things they seem to try out, but they're not really committing to any of them. Yeah, they, they've rebuilt the school. Dawn is now at the school. Um, there's a new principal who, it turns out, is the son of a previous slayer and therefore... Who Spike killed. Yes, mm. so Spike killed his mother and so there's the whole conflict between them. But also it means that the school is now being run as it was before by someone who knows there are demons but this time it's someone who's actually trying to fight the demons and you can see them trying to bring things full circle by, by going back to Sunnydale High in a way but it, it doesn't quite work and you, you can also see what they're trying to do with the potentials coming into it they're trying to expand this idea that Buffy's influence goes beyond just her ability to go out and kill a vampire and save a person mm. it, it's spreading beyond her and to other people but I don't know if it was just the casting or... I, I don't know what it was. It just didn't quite work. I do wonder if it's um, having had six seasons of having these characters grow together and become this core group who occasionally fell out with each other and, you know, were friends all the time but they were, and they were always fighting demons together, etc. To suddenly throw in 
a huge number of extra characters mm. and shake it up and then also be unclear what the focus is on plot or character I think that was tough because all of a sudden there are an extra five or six people having a crowded house where everyone are all yeah. well where everyone is all uh, living together and trying to give all these different potential slayers a character results in them having to be made all very distinct mm. and it's just very jarring I think the way they just have quite stereotypical characters like this type of slayer this type of slayer this type of slayer this type of slayer yeah I also I really couldn't stand Kennedy for some reason yeah. it and it her relationship with Willow didn't make any sense to me because she seemed to be the anti-Tara. Yeah. And Willow, e- even before she realised that she was gay, Willow was attracted to people like Oz, very quiet, very kind of spiritual people. And so you, you can see a commonality between, for example, Oz and Tara, yeah. even though by that point Willow had, had realised that she was gay. But Kennedy was... She, she just wasn't Willow's type. Yeah. I don't get it, and I still don't get it. It's unclear what they were really trying to do because, again, it's one of those moments where it didn't fit with Willow's character. A lot of the things that happened didn't really fit with the characters that had gone before. And I don't know if maybe they knew it was going to be the end or they were trying to expand the show even more in case it ran for longer or was going to have a spin-off or something. It was unclear, but it just didn't... Like Moments like that were... It sounds a bit harsh, but maybe a bit untrue to the characters that had been established. Mm-hmm. But I think for all of the flaws that season seven has, you know, it does end with Chosen, which I think is a pretty good season finale. Yeah, it's if you had because you had to top the gift in some way and actually having a raid on the Hellmouth itself and expanding this idea of being a slayer to beyond one person to many, many people is a, a good way to effectively expand the universe of Buffy. And if you're going to leave a character to go off into the future, then you have them standing there at the end with a completely unknown future because the whole world has changed. Yeah. Sunnydale itself is gone. Yeah. So those characters are no longer going to be in that town doing the same thing forever. Everything is going to change for them. And no longer being the only Slayer in the whole world, or, or one of two Slayers in the whole mm. world, uh, but with Faith out of the picture for a long time, felt like being the only one. Her future is going to change. And the ramifications of that are then felt in the comics if you yeah. carry on reading them which you should because they're absolutely cracking comics yeah. I think they're a good antidote to the bump in quality that season 7 has Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they take the idea that this is a completely new world for Buffy and the others uh, and for the world itself and they they look at how that would then play out across the whole globe and, and they're perfectly in continuity <laughs> yeah that's true and they're perfectly in continuity aren't they with, with uh, Buffy and Angel as well, to an extent, yeah. Yeah, so you've got they they got the rights to the Angel comics back again, and so they started running them in parallel. So there was the Angel and Face story, now there's an Angel story, and they're, they're now going together in the same seasons. So that's it, really. That's our favourite episodes and a couple of non-favourite episodes, yeah. but that needs to be mentioned. And there are more episodes, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you will agree with our list. Maybe you won't. Yeah. So one final thing is it time. For Buffy to be remade, rebooted, sequelized, prequelized, continued in some <laughs> format on TV or film. So we have the comics, but a lot of things are being brought back. They're being re- uh, resurrected in some way. They're being remade. It's happened with loads of shows, and it's clearly a trend which people are keeping an eye on. It hasn't happened to Buffy yet, mainly because it has the comics. 
but what's your view on that? Not yet, but I hope one day it is remade. And I realise this is quite a controversial viewpoint because in many respects people feel so protective of a show that they love and there are so many things that it did brilliantly that could never be created. But that doesn't mean that the character should never be returned to by future generations. You have to draw a distinction between a particular work of art, which could be a a TV series or a film or a book or whatever, which was executed brilliantly and should always be remembered and loved and rewatched and treasured, with a character who, once they get sort of absorbed into the cultural canon that we have, certainly the Western cultural canon, they deserve to keep having another life. And if you look back at some of the characters that have survived 50, 100, 200 years within that cultural canon, they're characters that can be revisited by each generation. And a new version of them that speaks to the concerns of a new generation is an important thing. So even just looking at characters like, I don't know, Robin Hood, Sherlock Holmes, people like that, you keep going back to them. And that doesn't mean that a particular version of it shouldn't be rewatched again in the future. Yeah. It still exists. It still exists. Yeah. And there are you know, brilliant versions of it, terrible versions yeah. of it, and those will still be watched. But with a character like that, the reason they survive is because they have something universal about them that every generation can pick up and use to look at their own concerns. And I think 20 years is too soon to do it. But give it another 10 or 20 years. And I actually really kind of hope that Buffy Summers lives again. Hmm. And that's not to say that it will be a better version, but it will be a different version. And it will be a version of Buffy Summers that is needed by a generation that will have their own issues to deal with. Yeah, and you can tell completely different stories with the same character. Yeah. Um, But just putting them in a different context and trying to work out what stories can be told using Buffy. You could be half-assed about it and say, well, it could be a different Slayer, it could be a Slayer in the future, it could just carry on the legacy of Buffy. Mm. But I think it deserves to be Buffy Summers herself, and that I hope 100 years from now people are making another Buffy in the same way that they would make another Sherlock Holmes and another yeah. Robin Hood. And that doesn't mean that no one should ever stop watching the original. It's not even the original, because the original is a movie. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's, it's just that the character deserves to have that life, I think. Yeah, another iteration for another time. Yeah, exactly. So that's it for episode 12 of Time for Cakes and Ale, our 20th anniversary Buffy retrospective. Mm. Next time, episode 13. Yeah, so next time we're going to bring together a few things under the the general heading of John Constantine on screen. The new Justice League Dark feature-length cartoon is out, uh, which we're going to be watching. And we're going to look at that in light of the Constantine TV show that they did a couple of years back, and also the much maligned Keanu Reeves movie. <laughs> I'm a huge Hellblazer fan, and at some point in the future we're also going to do one about the comics, but that's a whole topic in itself. Yeah, that's 300 issues of yeah. the original run, <laughs> the numerous uh, reboots that DC have done in the last sort of five years. Mm. Um, but I think, yeah, the character of John Constantine has been done a few times on screen, yeah. And I think what's interesting about it at the moment is a lot of iterations of comic book characters exist. 
and Constantine is still one which is bubbling away under the surface of being a really popular mainstream one, mm. although it has a very long history. And only recently, in the last decade, has he appeared on screen. Yeah. But there's a lot to that character, and I think there are lots of ways that character could be interpreted and used. And there are a few iterations that exist now, so we thought we'd uh, talk about that. Yeah, so that's going to be next time. Uh, if you want to get a heads up on when that episode is on, or follow us on our general exploits, then you can follow us on Twitter, which is at TFCAA. Uh, there's also a Facebook page you can like time for cakes and ale you can find us on itunes we've got a website timeforcakesnail.com at some point we're going to be doing a, a blog post about buffy so feel free to drop by and let us know your thoughts on the episodes that we've chosen or if you think there's any episodes that we should add to our all-time list uh, and please do get in touch we'd love to hear from you so until next time goodbye goodbye <laughs>